Media Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And for today's episode, uh, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing Brian uh, on his background um, with the sport of tennis, with with sports as a whole, um, learn more about how he got into the position where he is today um, as a sports psychology professional and how his work has has evolved over the, the years. Um, so, Brian, why don't we start um, the same way that we often start these interviews? Um, and usually you're on the other side of things with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but with really with your introduction to the sport and how how everything started for you as it relates to um, your life as an athlete. Sure. And I appreciate the opportunity to do this. You know, I thought uh, this would be a good idea for both of us. So uh, this is my chance. Um, Similar to your story, Josh, I was involved in a lot of sports when I was young. I think um, my first love was baseball. And uh, I remember, you know, so um, I think really some of my earliest memories are when I was like six years old. That was 1974. It was the year that Hank Aaron broke the broke Babe Ruth's home run record. And I was a huge Hank Aaron fan and um, actually got to see him play later that year. We went to Shea stadium in New York. So, you know, I think growing up in those early years, I wanted to be, you know, either a major league baseball player or, or, or an astronaut. Um, Tennis came along uh, still pretty early. I would say began playing tennis at at around six and um, you know, we were fortunate as a family, we belonged to uh, a local swim and tennis club in East Providence, Rhode Island called Kenbrin. It's not like a country club or anything. It's pretty modest. In fact, it's really just a pool. We had seven very nice courts and, and, and a playground. Um, but we used to go there every day. And in the 1970s, tennis was really, really booming. And of those seven courts during the week, the, the kids could only use four of them. And these courts were so packed they actually had to hire somebody to sign kids up for just half hour windows to play. Um, and so it was a great environment to, to be playing. Um, it's really, really different back then because now you see how we have tennis academies and all this stuff has been very professionalized for us back then. We just went out and we just played the game. Um, and so it was really different. We did get some instruction at the club. I would occasionally take private lessons, although I didn't get a lot of those, even through my teenage years. Um, most of it was was playing sets and, you know, occasional clinic play, you know, later on. Um, so baseball and, and tennis were kind of the two big organized things that I did, but I played a lot of um, basketball, football, street hockey, more, you know, sort of as part of like what we would do in, in the neighborhood. And, um, I was actually good at all of them, like really good at, at every one of those sports. Unfortunately, I couldn't play hockey. I only have one kidney. I had to be, one of them had to be removed when I was six because it just didn't function. It didn't develop. And so I think my parents got it in their heads that, okay, no contact sports for you, right? So uh, no hockey, <laughs> no organized football, which is fine. Um, and so tennis became a really kind of a, you know, an easy thing to do. Um, and I grew up, I would say a relatively shy kid. Um, and so tennis, I think began as I got a little bit older, really began to fit my personality. I liked being on my own. I liked thinking a lot. I did that a lot as a kid and, and tennis was a really good opportunity to, to do that. I started playing tournaments when I was 10 and had 
um, pretty immediate success um, playing those tournaments. Um, but growing up in Rhode Island, anybody who's from Rhode Island knows that, you know, we don't like to drive very much. So anything sort of beyond 15 or 20 minutes is, I mean, that's considered a, you know, a day trip. Um, and so I'd say, you know, throughout my junior career, you know, really didn't play as many tournaments as I could have, like as what you see today. Um, and so, um, yeah, my game really started to explode. I want to say my freshman year of high school. That's when, um, I went from being number four on the high school team to number one with all the same players. And, um, my game just over the course, I want to say four or five months, just like, boom, really exploded and got so much, so much better. Um, but you know, when I look at my tennis career and I think I've talked about this, I kind of have now, you know, in my fifties have split my tennis career into, into sort of two stages. One is sort of, um, you know, pre 30 years old and, and then post, you know, when I had a, I don't know if it was an epiphany, but I think many people, when they have milestone birthdays, it can be a time of reflection and, and thought. And so, you know, when I turned 30, I had this sense that, well, first of all, I knew, I, for whatever reason, I knew I was going to die, right? At that point, a sort of mortality came in to the picture a little bit more. Um, and I think that was helpful in realizing that, you know, being somebody who is a little bit shy and introverted and maybe also took life a little bit too much as it came, as opposed to being more intentional, um, that I wanted to change that. And, and tennis was, it was a part of that career was a part of that. Um, and so, you know, after the age of 30, you know, with, with respect to tennis, I, I wanted to make the part two of the tennis career better than part one. Um, and I think that that sort of thought then began to trickle into a lot of the things I did. Um, so even after 30, uh, you know, when I was younger, one of the other things I wanted to do when I was in high school is I wanted to be, um, go into sports broadcasting, wanted to, you know, ESPN or, or whatever, you know, and this is the 1980s ESPN is really just beginning to get its foothold. Um, and so all the schools I looked at when I was a junior in high school were completely different than the ones I looked at when I was a senior. And, um, you know, I think for whatever reason, I got this sense from my parents that, that they didn't think I should do that. And being sort of the dutiful oldest child, I didn't fight it, you know? And so I went to college and did, you know, did other things than, than sports broadcasting. So in my thirties, I was like, you know, let me try that. Let me do that anyway. This is an opportunity to explore that, you know, and I did that for, for a couple of years, I actually was an intern, on a sports TV show. Um, and it just showed that sports was such a huge part of my life. Um, and that keeping it in my life was really important. Um, because since the age of 10, up until now, uh, with the exception of a few periods of injuries, I've really never stopped playing and competing. And um, so I've always kept that. You know, so some of my jobs, you know, where I got more into the computer science, uh, more software testing world, but I was always playing. It was sort of my release. It was a way of staying sane. It was a way of pursuing something that I was good at. And even though I was working a lot, I still wanted to get better. So I played, you know, men's open tournaments all throughout the 90s. I started playing the 35s uh, right as soon as I turned 35 in 2003. Um, 
And so it, it was ever present. And when I started to, you know, get really good, like when the part two of my career really started to explode was 2005, 2006, I was um, working as a consultant at Fidelity, which meant that I didn't have to do as many hours. You know, I could go in at seven and leave around four, four thirty. Um, and I lived in the same town as uh, where I worked. So it was a, basically a 10 minute commute. So I'd be home on some days by four fifteen, which gave me a lot of time to train and practice. Um, and then being a consultant, you know, I had vacation time um, that I could take to travel to tournaments for those two years travel to um, national tournaments in Kansas City, uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, Daytona Beach, Florida, a bunch of different places, played all over New England. Um, And as I, you know, competed more and more and was putting into place this mental game that I was working on, because that was part of the transition of of part two of my career, I wanted to really improve my mental game. And I knew that there were aspects of it that were holding me back, you know, sort of being up too upset about mistakes, you know, in matches, et cetera. Not that my temper was crazy bad, but it could be a distractor. It could derail me at times. And I really wanted to deal with that, that sort of handling the, the emotional roller coaster of playing a tournament. I felt like many players probably do this oftentimes this love hate relationship with the sport. And I, and I wanted to change that. And so those couple of years, right, 2004 played a lot, 2003, 2004 played a lot in New England, and then I, I wanted to get ready to go and take a couple of years playing the national events. And by that time, I think the biggest key for me, Josh, was having this idea of a reset button. You know, sometimes we call it flushing or whatever, um, but that's when it came to me that I wasn't ready for the next point as much as I needed to be. And so the idea of resetting and dropping the emotional baggage of a previous point was really important. So in those two years of going out onto the, you know, the 35 and over tour, I finished number nine in the country in, in 2005 and then number two in 2006. And then it was time for sort of another reflection, like, all right, how did I do that? Why, why did I have to do that on my own was a question. Why? wasn't anybody really systemically and progressively teaching people to be better competitors, to be, you know, mentally tough. A lot of the things that we talk about, you know, at that time, I don't think there were many people doing it that way. I think there are more now people are doing it that way, teaching it in in a systemic way. But back then, I don't think that was the case. I think when people went to see a sports psych professional, it was more about discussing a particular issue. It wasn't so much a model of like maybe you would have in a strength and conditioning program where you work on the basics first, right? Maybe your core strength, maybe some functional movement. And for us, what is that? Like that's awareness. So I was using um, different books, uh, CD program by Jeff Greenwald called Fearless Tennis, um, In Pursuit of Excellence by Terry Orlick, um, The Inner Game of Tennis, Winning Ugly, um, Charles Marr and Nick Boletari wrote a book about uh, mental training. So I was just using these resources to help me design the things that I wanted to do on the court. So, you know, after that, a couple of years, I, I 
joined Fidelity full time. And so my ability to play national tournaments became less and less. You know, when you're a full time employee, you're feeling like you got to be there more often. It's not as easy to leave at four, four fifteen, like it was when I was a consultant. Um, and then I would say, you know, that, that thought about, you know, mortality and purpose started to kick into more of the professional area. And I began to wonder, um, you know, in, in my, in my profession in, in software testing, is this really, is this that meaningful for me? Um, I come here, I do this job, but I, I like it, but I don't really love it. And I don't really know other than making money why I'm doing it. So I, I started to rethink about wh- what could, what could I do to contribute more to, you know, some sort of community. And so naturally I thought about tennis and I thought about this idea that I had about helping people to, to compete better. Um, and that's what I did. So I, I began to start the business even when I was working at Fidelity and I let them know, right. So I didn't want there to be any conflict of interest. So um, my boss and I had to you know, file some paperwork with the company that I would be doing this on the side. So I started on the side and I started working with some, some local players. Um, and, you know, I had a very small program at the time, you know, we talked about in your episode, how things evolved, you know, I remember maybe only like, I was like, sort of like a, you know, a three trick pony. I only had like three things I really kind of felt comfortable working on with people. And obviously that's expanded to, to much more now, but I remember, I like to remember back to those days because it makes me appreciate where I am today and that, that learning journey. So I did a lot of the, the stuff um, where we would do an on-court, say hitting session to work on some things. And then we have an off-court. So it really ended up being like a two hour block of time where we would go through these things. And, you know, the few players that I worked with doing, doing that model, um, especially over the summer where we could play on some public courts was really good and it was really successful and rewarding. Um, and then moving into later into 2010, started to have some real stress about my job, really was not enjoying it. I feel like maybe I got promoted to one level above really what I could handle and I, and I wasn't handling it as well. Um, and I didn't really have anybody to kind of talk that through with or, or whatever. So uh, maybe a bit of a rash decision. So I was just like, all right, screw it. Sports psychology is what I want to do. I'm going to quit. And um, it's been the best decision I ever made. Uh, so that was uh, really summer of 2010. Um, and then it was about, you know, similar to what probably you, you went through, Josh, is trying to, all right, how do I get started working? I had a few individual clients, but I, I, I was fortunate, you know, having played a lot of tennis in New England and uh, especially in Rhode Island, um, having a good network of people. And, um, you know, in general, people, you know, like me. Um, so that was helpful. And so getting started, um, you know, I reached out to a lot of coaches and there are a lot of people I have to, you know, I'm really grateful for, for helping me out. Um, the guy who first agreed to, to let me do a program at a club was named Brian Morissette. He was um, the head pro at uh, the Four Court Club in Cumberland, Rhode Island. So uh, we did a program there for a couple of years. Francisco Montoya at Manchester Athletic Club um, allowed me to come and work with the players at their academy, which is one of the best academies in the Boston area. Same with Jeff Barrup at the New England Academy of Tennis. He's not there anymore. He's doing his own thing and we still work together, but, you know, really grateful to him for, um, 
having me work uh, with, with their academy players. And then um, Ron Jenren, the coach at Bryant University, the men's tennis coach, really instrumental in helping me develop what I have, working with his players. And, uh, you know, I work with a lot of programs at Bryant now, and none of that would have been without, without Ron helping, you know, and Ron and I have actually known each other since uh, the 12 and unders and all through high school tennis. So, you know, uh, a long relationship there. So, you know, those relationships were probably the most important thing for me to, uh, to, to, to get started. So, um, you know, now, um, you know, working on my own, just like you, Josh, you know, enjoying things, doing, you know, even though, uh, the world went virtual with COVID, I had started a virtual model before that. So in terms of how I engage with clients, it really wasn't that much different. So, um, you know, still working with, uh, college teams, working with athletes in other sports besides tennis. Um, you know, and along the way, I've been fortunate to coach at, at Bryant for both the men and the women and at Boston college, uh, one semester with Nigel Bentley for BC. So, and we, you know, we, we had a great run that year making the NCAAs first time in 22 years for the school. Um, and so all of that stuff is really, I felt, feel like has influenced who I've become and, um, you know, really kind of. You know, this is career number two, so I'm sort of starting off later than most. You know, you're still in your 20s, Josh, and um, you know I'm in my 50s, and in in some ways we're kind of like in the same place, right? Career in terms of sports psych, um, but I think it's all good, and um, you know I'm looking forward to uh, you know practicing for many years to come. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I'm sure all of our listeners got got a lot out of that story, and I. I also um, learned a lot from that in terms of, um, you know, that, that decision that you made to, to really, you know, take that leap, which I, you know, I also talked about in my, my journey, how my, you know, my leap was more recent. It was actually just last month. Um, But it, you know, it takes, it takes courage, you know, knowing what you want to do and being able to, you know, get to that point where, you know, after a lot of thought, you're, you're ready to go for it. So I think, you know, when you look back at it, it's, you, you mentioned it, it being one of the, the best decisions you ever made or the best decision you ever made. So um, I think that's, that's really commendable. Um, one, one question I have, I know uh, just a few years ago, you came out with your book, The Mentally Tough Competitor. Um, can you talk us through um, how that process came about and, uh, and, you know, what that was like in terms of um, deciding to write it, that that process of actually writing and releasing it, um, and and a little bit more about what that, what that was like going through that? Sure. I think, um, I mean, I guess I'd always wanted to write a book. Even when I was a kid, I used to fold up pieces of paper and write stories on them and sell them. So I think there was always some sort of idea in me that I wanted to write. And I don't know that I'm a particularly good writer. I think I need more and more practice at that. There, uh, but I enjoy it. I enjoy writing the blog um, on on my website. So the book I wanted to put out there because, and I'd like to do. I'd like to write more books. I think that would actually be really fun to to, to continue to do that. But I wanted to put out something that spoke to how I saw things in tennis or in sports, the challenges of it, because I feel like. Um, 
I have a unique take on some things. And uh, that has come about through a lot of reading over the years and a lot of studying and then thinking about those concepts and, and, and coming up with different ways of, of thinking. And so I think the idea of the book was, let me just put out some, some short chapters that address specific topics that could help people change the way they think. Um, I, I think a, uh, one of the unique constructs of what I do is this idea of helping people to develop a personal philosophy. And it, to me, a personal philosophy is, well, first of all, philosophy is really just ideas behind your thinking. And when you don't have better ideas behind your thinking, we are usually uh, slaves to default modes of thinking, which are typically things like loss aversion. So we tend to think more about what we have to lose than what we have to gain. We tend to think more about what we did wrong uh, or what needs to be improved. Um, We tend to focus more on avoiding unpleasant emotions. Uh, And that's more or less hardwired into how we are. It's part of our survival instinct. But many of those modes of thinking are not beneficial, you know, to performance in life or, or in a sport like tennis. And so I think of developing a personal philosophy as, in a way, an upgrade to how you think. It's realizing that, you know, this is not a life or death situation. So we don't have to be thinking about some of those things. Here's how we can think better. So the book was meant to be used as a way of creating and spurring better ideas behind how people think and really give them a a better personal philosophy about how to approach things like challenges, competitions, learning and making mistakes along the way. Um, And like, you know, Josh, there are a lot of almost seemingly contradictory ideas in sports psychology, right? So you got to focus on the process, but you also kind of have to know what you're trying to win at the same time. And so it's how do you keep some of these things in balance? And so there are some ideas on, on that. Um, I put it into 50 different small chapters. I, you know, I looked at Jeff Greenwald and his book, and I found his book to be extremely readable that way. So he has 50 chapters. They're all about one and a half to two pages. So I, I you know, kind of strove to do the same thing. And you know, to get the content, what I did is I went back and looked at all the different blog posts that I've written over the years at least at, you know, 2018. And I'd probably written over 120, 130 different blog posts. And so I started to organize those knowing that not everybody's read those. And I tried to put them in a specific order under different topics. And then I rewrote them to be, you know, more book-like and less blog-like. And uh, the process took probably a good six months or so. And I did self-publish so I did it through through Amazon's self-publishing piece. Um, I, I just wanted that experience as well to you know to create a book that you can have in paperback or in Kindle. Um, and so it was a great experience, and it's been nice to be able to give it to students or other people. Um, I do use it with a lot of students, and will assign homework. That might sound funny, like I'm assigning my own book as as reading, but I think some of the concepts in there are are worth at least, uh, you know, as prompts to get a conversation started and again, get people thinking in different ways. So um, I would love to write, you know, more on that, whether that's a mental training program per se, or maybe it's sort of, you know, 
part two on perspectives and mindsets for, for achieving excellence. That's awesome. And I know that I, through, through reading it, I, I certainly got a lot out of it. Um, and I, we can, you know, certainly link to that um, because I think that that has a lot of value for any, any sort of athlete, whether, you know, tennis player, coach, parent. Um, I think I, I know there's a lot, a lot in there. Um, so you, you mentioned, you mentioned working with players on their personal philosophy. And I know that's, that has a lot to do with um, what you, with the work that you do with players currently. Um, is that something that that developed over over the years in the last decade or so um, of doing this sort of work is it, how did that come about um, in terms of understanding the importance of of really forming that personal philosophy and um, how do you go about working with players on on that sort of concept yeah i think it has come about maybe over the last 13 or so years so back in 2008, I started a, a reading habit of um, I'd read 30 minutes of a nonfiction book each day or maybe between 10 and 30. And then whenever I was in the car, I'd listen to um, an audiobook, you know, or some sort of uh, instructional, motivational thing. And through that reading and that listening, it just started to shape my mind more. Right. I was just essentially like feeding it good nutritional information and um, and it was giving me new perspectives on how to look at things. And then after that, I started keeping a notebook of some of the key perspectives or mindsets that were I found helpful. And uh, now I've put that into a digital notebook. I've actually published some of that, you know, in a PDF for people who want it. They can have that. Um some of the things I found really, you know, beneficial. And so they started, those philosophies then started to influence how I performed on a daily basis and, and especially on the tennis court. Um, and one where, one area where I saw this, especially, and I think this is a good example of why having a personal philosophy can, can benefit you. So let's look at uh, the idea of playing one point at a time. Um, many of us are told to do that. I know when that was presented to me as a teenager, I cognitively understood the concept, but I really didn't know how to do it. And I didn't really know why. And so now when we're working on developing a personal philosophy, we'll take an example like that, you know, cause lots of players will, you can teach them the 16 second cure. They can go through those stages, et cetera. But if they don't know why, then it's easy to quit on it or, or lose faith in what it is. And so why do we have a between point routine? Why is it important to play one point at a time? And you brought up this, I think, idea of present moment awareness when we did your interview. Um, to me, the big philosophical underpinning of the in-between point routine is that the most important point in the match is always the next one. And the routine gets you ready for the most important point of the match. That resonated, you know, a lot with me. That really got me uh, to want to invest in a technique. So, you know, when I think of my own practice, you know, my practice is, I would say, the approach is sort of an existential cognitive approach. So existential being more on the philosophical side, trying to understand purpose and meaning 
values that you are more than just uh, a tennis player. You're a human being and, you know, your whole life uh, influences that. And then on the cognitive behavioral side, it's a lot more about your typical mental skills, training things, focus, confidence, goal setting, um, self-talk, right? And so what I like to do is try to marry those two things together. It's great to, you know, have specific self-talk, but if you can have some philosophical underpinnings that really help you uh, be more invested in that, it's going to work better. So kind of combining those two things is, is really what I'm going for. So whenever I'm working with somebody, we've got sort of a, you know, a philosophical curriculum and we've got a, you know, mental skills training curriculum and we're marrying those together along the way. Um, so, you know, ways that we train that is it, it is a lot of reading or watching specific videos and then reflecting and talking about it and then using those types of thoughts in competitive situations. But but there's a lot of conversation that goes on or like, you know, I'll have somebody read uh, a chapter or two in my book or something else. And, you know, we'll talk about it for 20, 30 minutes, what this means. And how might you apply it? How is this different than how you used to think about this type of situation? You know, one of those is uh, something you referenced in, in your uh, episode, Josh, the whole 1% better piece. Um, watching the Eric Buderak TED Talk is one way to address it. I have a couple of other articles that, that talk about how Olympic coaches in other sports use the idea of 1% improvements to go from having uh, terrible performance to now being world champions all through this idea of incremental improvement. And so when you begin to open up the eyes, especially of young players to how to do these things, and then you give them ways of monitoring it, like through um, journaling and other reflective practices, they begin to see it. They begin to feel that improvement. And then you can introduce more and more philosophical concepts um, because they, they begin to buy in with that early stuff, um, you know, especially around 1%. That's one of the first ones that I always like to, to use with athletes. Um, so, yeah, I think that's essentially how we, we go about doing it. But I think it's important that you attach your philosophy to what you're doing. It's not just thinking. We want to make sure that we're applying that thinking to specific situations that you're going to find yourself in on the court or even in life. That, 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 that certainly makes sense. And part of that, part of building that philosophy that you're talking about is, is that, that um, reading and learning process that I know, I know um, you have gone through and, and, you know, really as a lifelong learner um, that, you know, that, that I'm sure has continued to underpin the work that, that you do today. Um, one, one question that I have that relates to, um, you know, being a lifelong learner and, um, some some people some people I'm sure probably aren't aware of this, but you're currently in the very final stages of um, of a doctoral program um, within sports psychology. Um, if you could, I, I think it would be awesome if you could, you know, tell tell our listeners a little bit more about about what that's been like these past few years, and uh, maybe what you've learned from going through that program. Yeah, it's been a it's been a good challenge. It's been exciting. Uh, at times, a lot of work. I know, like, especially when I was at Boston College in 2019, and I always feel bad about this for, for Nigel, the head coach. Um, there was one class 
where we were literally writing a 10 page paper every week for 10 weeks. And, (laughs) and I had another class on top of that. So uh, it was just taking up a lot of time and uh, it was hard to do a lot of the, you know, the coaching work and traveling, you know, a team like Boston college, you're in the ACC. uh, Most of the schools are not close. Most of your opponents are, you know, I mean, Notre Dame's, you got to fly out to Chicago or you're down South. Um, so there's a lot of travel time. So, but it's been a really good learning journey. Um, I think it's, you know, continued to help me develop and evolve what, what I'd like to do. Um, as well as learning some of the other aspects, you know, so the, the program itself is very geared toward helping practitioners get their certified mental performance consultant certification from, uh, from ASP, which is the Association of Applied Sports Psychology. And um, so you, you have to take classes in, in some other things like counseling methods, um, you know, their exercise physiology, um, multicultural counseling, uh, sport and society. So it was really, you know, interesting to take some classes that were not that they're not involved in what we do. They are. Um, they're good to know, but, but they're not like the strict sort of sports psychology uh, applied um, classes that, that you might take. Um, but it's been a good journey. It's been about three and a quarter years. So when it's done in December, um, really the last thing I have to do is defend what's called a theoretical orientation, which I kind of just gave you a little bit of a preview on, you know, it's sort of this existential cognitive piece. So I'll have to explain that more deeply, but then I'll also go through a case study that shows how I applied that to a particular player uh, or athlete. So, um, you know, I've chosen a a tennis player that I've worked with for the last seven, eight months and, uh, you know, continue to work with today. And I, and I think it's a good example of how we've, we've done that. And he's been somebody who's uh, given things to read in the book and we've talked about those things and, um, It'll be, you know, the the case study sort of ends with, you know, what do I think are some of the implications of what we did together for my own practice? You know, and it's um, it's been good to look at, like, what things really worked well with this player that uh, maybe I want to feature that a little bit more or 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 something like that, you know. And so um, just the 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 idea of having to develop my, you know, theoretical orientation, which has been what this year has been about. So it's been like a one year journey of just developing that along with some other uh, assignments. Uh, It's been a good learning journey, you know, and uh, the year also involved uh, mentorship. So we've had different mentors throughout the year talk to us. We would do, um, you know, meet as a group. So I had a couple other guys uh, in my cohort who are on the same track as I am for graduating in in December. And, uh, yeah, so we would talk about cases. We talk about different readings that we were doing. Um, so it's just been a really positive, positive year, uh, to, to finish up the program. And I'm excited. I'm wondering what I'm going to be doing with my time afterwards, but, uh, it's all good. Yeah. That, that's actually what I was going to ask you about. You know, I, I know it's been a you know big time commitment and I know it's, you know, I'm sure you've, you've learned a lot and I'm sure it's been, um, you know, quite, quite an experience going through it. So what, what do you see as being um, sort of, sort of the next chapter in terms of um, your practice and maybe, you know, applying some of the, the learnings or, or certain changes 
um, from these past few years? I think definitely wanting to do more writing, Josh. Um, one person I think I've maybe mentioned to you in, in conversation, I don't think we ever talked about him on the podcast, is a guy named Dan Abrahams. He's a uh, sports psych professional, uh, mainly works in professional soccer or football in, in the UK. Um, and uh, from a writing perspective, he is like prodigious. He has a LinkedIn post every single day. He writes books. You know, he's, he's writing all the time. I actually don't know how he has time to see anybody, given <laughs> how much he's writing. Um, but I would like to do more of that, you know, get back to writing for the blog or do post more things on, on LinkedIn. Um, I really enjoy doing the podcast stuff. And I think we can, we can continue to improve what we're doing here. Uh, the two of us are also involved with a sports psychology committee for USPTA New England. And I think that there are more things like that. So um, those are just some ideas, you know, and then we'll see what else happens uh, beyond that. I mean, I, to be honest, I really like the life that I have. Um, I, I like the work that I do. It's certainly, you know, like financially, it's not the same as, as what it was like working in, in, in software. Um, but the purpose, the meaning that I have, um, the people I get to work with, um, both whether it's students or as colleagues. Um, I mean, I just have it. That's things are just in such a good place right now. So I just want to kind of continue, continue with that and just expand on, on what I do. Absolutely. Um, and, I, and I'm sure that'll be very, very exciting once you, once you go, go through that, that last milestone of, you know, defending it and, and really going through that, um, your, your philosophy and that, that work um, with the, the doctoral committee and, um, you know, finishing up that, that program. So congratulations on that in, in advance. Thank you. Um, so as we, as we start to, to wrap up for today, um, wanted to see if you had any any last thoughts? I, we've we've gone through a lot about your your background on a deeper level um, in terms of your philosophy and how you work with with athletes. But I wanted to see if there are any any last thoughts that, that you had. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know we obviously talk about tennis on this podcast, right, through a sports psychology lens. And whenever I work with tennis players, I I tell them that, I, and, and perhaps you know you and I are biased on this, but. I think tennis is one of the most difficult sports mentally. It's very mentally challenging. Um, I have a lot of empathy for what players are doing. It takes a lot of courage to go out there, uh, to go out onto a court, not knowing whether you'll win or lose. Um, It takes a lot of courage to have your results published online for everybody to see. Um, And, you know, you get the credit, you get the blame. It's, it's you. I mean, if you're out there in a doubles partnership, yeah, you can blame somebody else, but yeah, you're obviously a big part of that. So, um, you know, I say that only to like the, the tennis IQ podcast audience that this is a tough sport. Give yourself some credit for trying to, to do this. Um, and we've, we've mentioned, uh, on the podcast a bunch of times now, how viewing tennis as a life project and that's really kind of how I've come to see it, Josh, over the last few years is that tennis is just, it's just something I do. It's not everything about who I am. Um, and I've learned not to over-identify with my experiences in tennis. And, and the idea of thinking about it as a project and, um, you know, almost like, all right, I should have a project plan. And like, we'll have certain categories in the plan. And this is like when I'll do it. Like, 
that's actually not a bad idea to look at it that way. And because anytime we take on a project that we enjoy, we want to do it well. And so if we begin to think about it more that way, um, I, I think um, it can be healthier, uh, but it also might help you to um, work harder at it and, and, and improve more at it. So um, given that tennis is such a tough sport, that's you know, perhaps one way for people to, to look at it and begin to not over-identify with um, their, their results. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, as, you know, we, as we close this out, with tennis being such a mentally challenging sport, try to, you know, have people give themselves, uh, cut themselves a break a little bit more as they go through this. Um, it's such a battle out there. The scoring system is so tricky. Um, you may not think it is, but, um, it's inviting you to judge yourself after every single point when we know not every single point really in the end counts. Although in the moment you have to play it like it absolutely important. Right. Um, and there's just so many things going on out there that the more that, you as a tennis player can be kind to yourself, be compassionate with yourself. Um, the better you'll perform, but the more you'll enjoy the sport. You know, when I think back to when I said I had that sort of love hate relationship, it was due to a lot of negative self-talk, a lot of just sort of anger and frustration. And part of that was because I didn't really understand the true nature of the sport. I didn't, understand like what we just said about how points are, are a means to win games and games are a means to win sets and so forth. The more you can develop the right perspectives on these things, the, the better you'll be able to navigate the, the mental challenges of the sport. And, and, you know, my hope is that people can get to a place where they love tennis more, love playing the game more, that they don't avoid playing the actual game that they enjoy going out there and, and playing a set and seeing how it turns out. Um, because I think that is something that in today's world, uh, sometimes there's a little bit not, or there's not enough of that. There's not enough play of the game, especially at the younger level. Although I think academies and junior programs are starting to come around to the necessity of getting kids to play more sets. Because um, how else are they going to learn how to win? You're really not going to unless you're putting yourself and getting the experience of, you know, going from zero to six uh, and getting to six before your opponent uh, multiple times. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's that's an important point that it is it is a challenging sport. It is. I mean, after every point, there's that, you know, that that instant feedback. Did did you win or did you lose? And, you know, it's important to try to view that in in a productive way. Um, get get as much experience as possible playing playing sets and enjoying that process um, because if not you know it can be can be really tough out there. Um, but thank you, Brian. I think that was um, I, I I know I got a lot out of it. I'm sure our listeners did. Uh, as well. And that's our show for today. Um, for more on today's show and to learn more about um, Brian's business, Performance Extra, um, you can check out the show notes for that information. If you have any feedback or questions for us, you can send us an email at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. 
Um, additionally, you can also follow Tennis IQ podcast on Instagram, where we post updates. Um, and you can subscribe um, to the show on your podcast platform of choice, um, which also includes YouTube. So you can be notified of new episodes. Thank you again. And we'll talk to you soon in our next episode. Thank you.